Welcome to The Poison Room, a podcast about dangerous writing with a host that's really bad at guessing how long things will take. Before we begin, I've got a couple of programming notes. First, a correction. Last episode, I used the pronunciation Khmer Rouge, but apparently that's not the Cambodian pronunciation. It's Khmer Rouge. Thank you for the info, Peter. I'm sure I've got other pronunciations wrong, and if any of you know how things should be pronounced, I'd love to hear from you. Secondly, most of this episode is fine on the content front. There are some mentions of killing. I've tried to convey how bad they were without getting too specific in the details, because they're grim as hell, and dwelling on the details won't add anything to this story. So, with that said, let's recap. Last time we covered, well, a lot of stuff, but the central focus was the founding of the newspapers in Cambodia in the 1930s, leading to the creation of one known as the Nagaravata, founded by three men, Pak Chuan, Sim Vo, and Son Nok Tan. The newspaper was the breeding ground for growing ideas of national identity and for forming ideas between the Buddhist monastic orders, the Sangha, students, and other intellectuals. After the arrest of the monk Hem Chiu, Pak Chuan and Song Nok Tan had helped organise a march to Phnom Penh, which Pak Chuan led. The goal was to present a petition for the release of Hem Chiu. What happened instead is that Pak Chuan, along with other protesters, were arrested. Song Nok Tan, who had been hiding out when the march took place, fled the country and ended up under the protection of the Japanese in Tokyo. When the Japanese swooped in and disarmed the French in 1945, Pak Chuan was released from prison and Tan was summoned back from Tokyo. Tan joined the cabinet of the new government as Minister of Foreign Affairs. In August of 1945, there was a coup, supported by Than, where several young men stormed the palace and demanded the king, Sihanouk, dissolve the current cabinet and abdicate. After the coup, Than becomes prime minister and Pak Chuan joined his cabinet. But the other thing that happens in August is the end of World War II, and the French decide they want Cambodia back. They manage this with relative ease, due to Tan's government having no real plan to fend them off. Tan is arrested on the 15th of October and sentenced to 20 years imprisonment. He was released after 17 months and relocated to exile in France. Pak Shuen fled to the countryside when Tan was arrested, where he temporarily meets up with members of the rebel Isarak. But when the French regain the territory in which their cabinet base was located, the committee falls apart and Chuan surrendered in April 1946. By 1949, the Isarak and other anti-colonial pro-nationalist groups were causing more and more trouble for the French and Sihanouk. Which is not to say they weren't causing trouble before then. In 1946, for instance, Isarak forces had massacred over 100 people in the Catholic village of Ki Puoi. Catholicism was a French import, making it something despicable to the nationalists. In Phnom Penh, the political situation was growing more unstable. A man called Yem Samba was in charge, 
and the Democratic Party were refusing to work with him, due to him kind of being a little bit of a backstabby backstabber. By September of 1949, he'd asked Sihanouk to dissolve the assembly. This should have meant that new elections needed to take place within two months, but Sambar and Sihanouk used the worsening bloodshed in the countryside to argue that they can't safely hold elections, and therefore, totally reasonably, suspend them indefinitely. Students responded to this move by staging a protest. But one student who probably wasn't at those protests was a young man called Sonoth Saw. He's the central focus of this episode, so let's go back a bit to find out more about his life up until this point. It's hard to pin down some of the details of Saw's early life, because sources are scarce and they don't always agree with each other, and Saw himself falsified a lot of details. And this uncertainty extends even to his date of birth, but it was probably either 1925 or 1928. The latter date leaves less time unaccounted for, but his siblings have stuck by the former date. He was the eighth of nine children. His father was a well-to-do farmer, and subsequently could afford to send his children to school. The situation of his family was not quite normal compared to other families in the same area. They had several connections with the palace in Phnom Penh. One of his older brothers worked as a clerk at the palace, and one of his old sisters was a consort to King Monivong. In 1934 or 35, at around nine or ten years old, Saw moved in with one of his older brothers, Che. The first thing he does is spend several months at a Buddhist monastery, a standard part of any young boy's education. Here, he became literate in Khmer, before heading on to attend a Catholic missionary school, the École Miche. The lessons here, unsurprisingly, were taught in French. Even just a primary education put Saw into a very small cohort. There were around half a million school-aged children in Cambodia at the time, and only a few thousand of them could afford to get this level of education. In 1941, Thailand invaded and took control of Batambong and Siem Reap. The French now had an inaccessible college in Batambong, so to replace it, they opened one in Kompong Jam. The new place is Collège Norodom Sihanouk, in honour of the newly installed king. In 1942, 20 boys were chosen to be the first cohort, and Saw was one of them. All of these students were to be boarders. Unfortunately, we don't know when Saw left for Kompongsham, so we don't know if he was around in Phnom Penh when the monks' demonstration against the arrest of Hem Chu, the one that led to the arrest of Pak Chuan, took place. Even if he wasn't there, Saw would very probably have heard about it. But at this point in his life, he wasn't much interested in politics. Again, the lessons in this school were in French, and speaking Khmer was discouraged. Saw wasn't a brilliant student. He played the violin and seemed to enjoy it, but apparently wasn't great at it. He learned to play the Roniat too, a traditional Cambodian instrument. 
World War II didn't seem to be a source of any particular attention for him and his schoolmates and friends until the 9th of March, when the Japanese swiftly moved to disarm the French. One of the consequences of this move by the Japanese was that all of the French teachers at the school were replaced with Khmer teachers. So, even if you're a kid not interested in politics, that's a thing you're going to notice. We don't know what Saw did in 1946, the same year the Democratic Party won its first election. But he finished at Collège Sihanouk in 1947, and enrolled as a carpentry student at the École Miche Technique in a northern suburb of Phnom Penh. Now, the timeline here gets a bit confusing. According to Saw's brother, he went straight from Collège Sihanouk to the École Miche Technique. There was a more prestigious school, the Lycée Sisowa, that several of his friends went to instead. Later, in 1978, Saw claimed he took and failed the entry exam for the Lycée in 1948. David Chandler suggests that he went to the École Miche Technique because he failed the entry exam to the Lycée, which means that he couldn't have been at the École Miche Technique in 1947 if we trust Saw himself that he sat the entry exam in 1948. Despite not going there himself, Saw does still make friends with a student from the Lycée, a boy named Ieng Sari. It's a friendship that lasts. Both boys worked for the Democratic Party in late 1947. Given that Sari was already very politically aware and active, and Saw had not, as far as we know, displayed any real interest in politics at this point, I suspect that Saw might have worked there because of his friendship with Sari. So, Saw's at the École Miche Technique in 1948 when Sihanouk dissolved the assembly at the request of Samba. In 1949, Saw bags one of a very limited number of scholarships to go and study in Paris. Since the programme had started in 1946, only around 100 men and women had been granted bursaries. Saw and his fellow scholarship recipients set sail for France on August the 31st, 1949. They arrived just under a month later, in late September. In his first year, he takes a room at the Indo-Chinese Pavilion of the Cité Universitaire, a student accommodation at the edge of the city. His first year is pretty quiet in terms of things that are of interest to this story, but back in Cambodia, things are not at all quiet. The political situation is still tense, and it gets even more tense when, on the 14th of January 1950, Yukoas, head of the Democratic Party, is assassinated. Someone rolled a grenade into the headquarters of the party whilst Koas was in the building. A neighbour chased after the assassin and caught him, and he was handed over to the authorities. But they failed to find out who had hired him, and suspicion, rather unsurprisingly, fell on the French, or Sihanouk, or Samba, or some combination of those. For their part, the French blamed the Isarak. The assassin made, and then retracted, a statement that he was a member of the Liberal Party. Kuas had been a popular man, 50,000 people attended his funeral, and Prince Norinder, the head of the Liberal Party, fled to France, fearing reprisals. 
By early March, under pressure from the French, Sihanouk dismissed Samba. He was replaced with Prince Sisouaf Monipong, who formed a new, still non-political cabinet. By this point, the National Assembly had been dissolved for five months, with elections still indefinitely postponed. Neither the Democratic Party nor the Liberal Party were happy about this. Monipong and his cabinet set about trying to figure out how to proceed. Meanwhile, out in the countryside, conditions are deteriorating further as fighting continues between the French-led forces and the Isarak and other rebel groups. At the same time, Monipong is replacing Samba, the ICP, the Indochina Communist Party, held a meeting where they decided they haven't formed enough committees and really should make some more. In April, the first National Congress for Khmer Resistance is held in Cambodia. That Congress ratified the establishment of the United Isarak Front based on the recommendations of the Liberation Committee, the one that the Viet Minh formed in 1946 and put Song Nok Min in charge of. The Congress also does something else rather important. It establishes a proto-government, the People's Liberation Central Committee. Song Nok Min is made president of this group, with three vice presidents for different regions under him. Two of these were Siu Heng and Tu Samut. This proto-government undertakes a serious effort to educate its Khmer fighters, both in things such as military tactics and things like certain political ideologies. By September of 1951, they've settled on a name of Khmer People's Revolutionary Party, the KPRP. Technically, the ICP had dissolved at this point, but actually what happened was they just renamed it the Vietnamese Workers' Party and made separate groups for Cambodia and Laos. The KPRP statutes were essentially directly translated into Khmer from those written by the Vietnamese. The party would grow in strength over the next few years, as more people in favour of independence, and willing to fight for it, joined their ranks. Back in Paris, in November of 1950, Soloth Saw was joined by his buddy from the Lycée Sisoath, Ieng Sari. Sari quickly goes about getting in touch with a former tutor of his who was also in the country, Keng Vansak and introduces him and Saw to each other at the start of 1951. Sari's arrival marks the beginning of an increased political awareness and activity among Saw and his cohort. They set up informal reading groups to discuss various literature, which included a lot of communist texts. Saw probably attended these reading circles initially because of his friendship with Sari, but Vansack later recalled that Saw spend a lot of his time reading on his own. Meanwhile, in February 1951, Prince Monopong dissolved his cabinet. He had been trying to get the parties to agree on how to proceed in selecting a new government and had failed to get them to reach an agreement. The Democratic Party and the Liberal Party wanted the National Assembly of 1947 restored, but smaller parties who hadn't won any seats in that election, and parties formed after that point, wanted there to be a new election. A new, still non-political interim party replaces them. The Democratic Party 
refused to join. In July of that year, Sari and several other students went to a festival in East Berlin. They returned with pamphlets and news about what was happening in Cambodia. News about Song Ngoc Min and Cambodian support of the Viet Minh. The reaction among the students was split. Some wanted to return to help with the fighting. Some wanted Cambodian independence, but without any involvement from the Viet Minh. Others wanted Song Ngoc Tan, who was still in exile in Paris, to return as head of the Democratic Party and lead a political struggle against the French and Sihanouk. Despite their reading in communist literature, most students still supported democracy rather than communism, and many supported Tan, including both Saw and Sari. In fact, Sari and some friends actually approached Tan to ask him to pursue that last idea, but he remained politely disinterested. Sihanouk had been pressured by his father and people within the Liberal Party into pressing the French to allow Tan's return, and by the time Sari and his friends approached him, Tan had already been invited to return. He did this a few months later, hoping to be able to reach a political compromise with Sihanouk. His departure left the students in Paris without a national political figure for them to rally around and respect, and rather disillusioned. Back in Cambodia, on the 9th of September 1951, elections were finally held. Around 300 voting booths failed to open due to unsafe conditions. Once again, the Democratic Party won the majority of the seats. Neither the party of Lon Nol, the Khmer Renovation Society, nor Sambar's Liberal Party win any seats. On the 29th of October, Son Nok Dan finally returns. A huge crowd turned out to welcome him back, hoping that he would be able to bring change to the country and make progress with independence. He's offered a cabinet position in the Democratic Party's government. A cabinet which, by the way, included one of his friends from the Nagaravata days, Pak Chun. Tan declines the offer, and instead spends several months touring the country. Now, on to 1952. On the 11th of February, Tan established a new paper, the Khmer Krauk. It managed to last a whole month before the French pressured the government to shut it down due to its anti-French stance. Then, on the 9th of March, Tan pulled a disappearing act and vanished into the forests of Siem Reap, where he joined up with a group of anti-French non-communist guerrillas. A handful of loyal followers joined him and more trickled in over the subsequent months. For some reason, this move makes Sihanouk and the French nervous and distrustful. They suspect, mistakenly, that the Democratic Party had been helping Tan and turn on them, leading to Sihanouk pulling a coup on the 14th of June. He dismisses the Democratic cabinet, declares himself prime minister, and forms a new cabinet with no Democrat representation. He outlines two particular goals for his government. They will defeat the rebels in the countryside within two years and gain independence within three years. A few days after the coup, he bans all political gatherings. Meanwhile, among the rebels, 
Sihanouk's declaration that he will achieve independence within three years was greeted with a mixed response. Some were pleased to hear it, and later would even join him in Siem Reap. Others simply didn't trust the guy who'd spent his entire rule collaborating with the French to actually achieve independence from the French. Sihanouk's coup also prompted a response from the Cambodian students over in Paris. A manifesto was produced demanding that Sihanouk abdicate and blaming him for all the recent troubles. It accused him and his predecessors of collaborating with the French. The student magazine, Khmer Nisut, rushed out a special issue addressing the matter. In it is an eight-page article titled Monarchy or Democracy? The article was written by hand in Khmer, since there were no Khmer typewriters yet. It was one of two articles in the issue written by the same author, under the pseudonym Khmer Dorm. The original Khmer. The student behind the name was Solok Saw. This would not be the only time Saw would assume a different name. He would use several throughout his life. To some, he would be known as Brother Number One, or Uncle Secretary. By 1976, he would be known to the world as Pol Pot. Shockingly, the articles are pro-democracy and anti-monarchy. I could only find full transcripts of the Monarchy or Democracy article that were translated into English from the French, which had in turn been translated from the Khmer. But the starting argument is that it was only under democracy that the Khmer people had had a chance to breathe, and for real democracy, the French must be ousted. By dissolving the cabinet and threatening to dissolve the assembly, Sihanouk was siding with the French rather than his people. And his actions prove that Cambodia does not have a constitutional monarchy, but an absolute monarchy. He goes on to call monarchy an unjust doctrine, as infectious as a putrid plague. He claims that monarchy is both the enemy of the people and of religion. The fact that he presents religion as good confirms what the title already suggests. At this point, Soloth Saur is still very much a democrat, not a communist. He also calls monarchy the enemy of knowledge, by which he means monarchies suppress people gaining knowledge that would allow them to understand that monarchies are unjust and democracy is better. As we'll see eventually, this claim would be profoundly and miserably ironic. He also claims that monarchies and democracies cannot coexist. Sihanouk's coup has proven that. The penultimate point of his article, after claiming that the French supported the coup, is a comment about what Sihanouk is likely to do in the future. Again, with bitter irony, it will turn out to be an accurate statement of Saw's own regime. He claims that Sihanouk's plan, quote, aims only to gag the people, to arrest and expel those who dare oppose the policy of the king. Second, it aims to dissolve political parties that oppose the interests of the throne, because political parties do not remain silent. Finally, the king's policy is to provoke a civil war which will burn everything, even the pagodas. The monks, the people, the civil servants will experience painful family separations. They will see their parents, their wives and their children crushed by tanks, burned by napalm. 
the crops will be destroyed. End quote. He ends by stating that, since the king will have used colonial armies to suppress the rebels, he will be indebted to France, who will continue to rule as colonial overlords. That's Saw's contribution. But the centrepiece of the issue was by Kang Vansag, in which he praised Song Nok Fan and accused Sihanouk of treason. So, despite the fact that many of these students have been reading communist literature, and despite the fact that many of them, including Saw, had joined the CFP, the French Communist Party, the tone of the issue is definitely still democratic rather than communist. Now, according to Philip Short, copies of the special issue of the Khmer Nisu were sent to leading groups in the Sangha, the Palace, the National Assembly, the Cabinet, and the prominent newspapers. Unfortunately, he doesn't give a source for this, and he's the only person I found giving that detail. But regardless, Sihanouk did know about the writings of the students in Paris, and was not at all impressed. He sent over his advisor, Pen Nout, who arrived in Paris in August. He talked to the unrepentant students, and informed them that their bursaries were being withdrawn. This action wasn't a particular punishment for Saw, who had already lost interest in his studies and withdrawn. In October, the students hold a meeting to discuss which of the rebel organisations they should support, whether anything could be done to unite the various groups, and whether the time had come for them to all return to Cambodia. Ultimately, they decide they just don't have enough information to make an informed decision and so they decide that someone should go back to scout things out and report back. Saw volunteers for this, and leaves France on the 15th of December. So ends 1952. In January 1953, things came to a head between Sihanouk and the Assembly. He asked for special powers, claiming that the kingdom was in danger. The Assembly refuses, and so he dissolved it and decided martial law was the way to go. He also had 17 members of the Democratic Party arrested. They would be held without trial for eight months. Saw arrived back the day after the assembly was dissolved and found a country scarred by conflict. In the countryside, the fighting had got brutal. Skip ahead 15 seconds or so if you don't want to hear how brutal. The Isarak are slaughtering people, disemboweling them, dismembering them. The colonial army were no better. They raped, burned and pillaged, subjecting even babies to brutal deaths, simply as demonstrations of their strength. The Viet Minh were not much better. They were torturing people for information and sending in squads to assassinate village leaders and assume control. And the peasants in the countryside are just helplessly caught in the middle, surrounded by these groups supposedly fighting for what's best for Cambodia, whilst happily slaughtering them. And these are the kind of groups Saw has to report back about. He spends the first half of 1953 making contacts with different groups, and around the middle of that year, reports his impressions to a fellow student who had returned to Phnom Penh a few months after him. The two options, as far as the students were concerned, were Sonnok Dan's Sarai Isarat group, or Sonnok Min's group. 
Shaw recommended Son Nok Min's group. The students in Paris take his advice and decide that Min's group is indeed the one they should support, hoping that it will lead to less bloodshed overall. By August, Shaw had left Phnom Penh to join Min's group. But Saw's not the only one who was busy that year. Sionuk was busy taking some decisive action to fulfil his promise to gain independence. The French had assumed that Sionuk wasn't really going to push that hard for it, given his track record of working with them. But they were wrong. Sionuk wasted no time in setting about his mission. In February of 1953, the month after dissolving the assembly, Sionuk had gone to France on the pretext of a rest cure. He was actually there to negotiate for independence with the French. Not that they knew it until he showed up to do it. Sionuk quickly realised that the French weren't going to take him seriously or work toward any real progress. So he left. He took the scenic route home, stopping off in Canada, the US and China giving talks and trying to meet with officials to get them to support his quest. In America, he's told by officials that independence for Cambodia would be meaningless, because if the French left, they'd immediately get taken over by the commies. For some reason, this irritates Sihanouk, and he gives an explosive interview to a journalist named Michael James. The story is published on the front page of the New York Times on the 19th of April. In the interview, he proposes that the French grant Commonwealth status to the countries in the Indochina bloc, and warns that if they don't, the Cambodian people might rise up and ally with the Viet Minh. I.e., America is worried that they'll get taken over by communism if the French leave, and Sihanouk's reply is, hey, if they don't leave, we'll join the communists to make them. The interview has the desired effect, and the French reopen negotiations, and Sihanouk arrived back in Cambodia in May on a wave of popular support. But by June, little progress had been made in the negotiations due to the French dragging their feet, and still being super reluctant to stop doing colonialism. In response, Sihanouk went into voluntary exile, and moved his headquarters to Siem Reap. He refused to speak to the French officials in Phnom Penh, but he also started welcoming any Isarak who wanted to join his cause. So, France's assumption that Sihanouk wasn't going to seriously pursue peace is looking pretty foolish at this point. And his bargaining position is strengthened by the fact that the Indochina war is becoming increasingly unpopular in France. They wanted to be doing less fighting, not more. Saw had gone to join Son Nok Min in August, but by this point the fighting was dying down, and it continued to die down in October when the French caved to Sihanouk and turned over control of the police, judiciary, foreign affairs, and many aspects of military operations, but they kept a hold of economic affairs. So it's not a total withdrawal, but it's still a huge victory for Sihanouk, who returns to Phnom Penh, cheered by welcoming crowds. In May 1954, the Geneva Conference was convened by the British and the Soviets in order to have negotiations to end the Indochina War. It's attended by representatives of the South Vietnam government set up by the French, but also representatives of the Viet Minh. Laos and Cambodia are there too. 
but there are only representatives of Sihanouk's government when it comes to Cambodia. The Isarak and other rebel groups weren't present. The end result of the Geneva Conference was that the French would fully withdraw from Cambodia and completely hand over power to Sihanouk. Without the focus of fighting for independence, the rebel groups in Cambodia are left in general disarray, but the Viet Minh welcome over 1,000 of the rebels to the northern territories they'd been granted by the conference. But the leaders of the Viet Minh also suggest that a few of Song Nok Minh's rebels stay behind, go underground and try to engage with the political system. Saw is one of those who stays behind. He moves to Phnom Penh and lives there under a different name. Back in Vietnam, the Vietnamese had appointed new leadership for the KPRP. Siu Heng became secretary, Tu Samut was his deputy, and Song Nok Min, stuck in Vietnam, was third in command. Heng was in charge of the movement in Cambodia's countryside, Samut was in charge of the urban side. The Geneva Conference also stipulated that an election had to be held in Cambodia at some point during 1955. Sihanouk was not a big fan of this stipulation. The Democratic Party was still super popular, and communists had recently formed their own new party, the Krom Prashirshon, or the People's Group. Saw had helped set it up and formulate its policies. Its public chair was a man called Kyo Mies. Meanwhile, other students had joined the Democratic Party, including Keng Vansak. Their presence pushed the overall line of the party towards a more anti-royalist and anti-American slant. Sihanouk did not want these parties to win. So he proposed legislation that would prevent anyone who hadn't been resident in Cambodia for the last three years from standing in the election. This would basically have excluded all the rebels who'd been hiding out along the borders, as well as all the students who'd been in France. So, like, the most prominent sources of opposition. The legislation doesn't pass. A fellow former student and teacher of Saw's, Thuan Mum, collaborated with Saw to coordinate the tactics of the two parties, and many observers at the start of 1955 thought that these two parties would win the majority of seats in the election. Then, in a dramatic move, Sihanouk appoints his father as king and abdicates, making him a private citizen. And as a private citizen, he can form his own political party, which he does, the Sankam Riastanium, or the People's Socialist Community. Several of the smaller conservative parties just fold and join Sihanouk, leaving the Democrats and Prashirshon as the only real competition. Between May and September of 1955, when the election was held, several opposition newspapers, i.e. those that were very pro-Song Nokdan or pro-Prashirshon, were shut down. One paper would shut down and another would spring up in its place. Their editors were arrested and imprisoned without trial. This included one of Saw's brothers, Soloth Che, who was editor of a newspaper called Somaki, or Solidarity. The Prashirshon group had its own newspaper, which managed to last for 19 issues from the 1st of April to the 10th of June 
before the editor was arrested and imprisoned. The candidates for the two parties were harassed, especially the Prashirshan candidates. At least one Democrat candidate spent most of the campaign in jail, as did three Prashirshan candidates. The day before the election, Keng Vansak was shot at by government agents. The day of the election, he was in jail. Their party headquarters in Batambong were ransacked. In Phnom Penh, it was surrounded by police. Voters were intimidated. There were instances of former Isarak members going to vote and instead being shot at. Every newspaper that was still running and didn't belong to the Sankham ran stories of electoral abuse. Several campaigners for the Prashirshan group were shot and killed. And when all else failed, Sihanouk's allies simply falsified the results. So, like, this was a super-duper fair election. There was an international committee there to oversee the election and theoretically make sure they were fair, but they were understaffed and most considered Sihanouk's unfair win to be a better outcome than a fair win by communist elements that might succeed in making the whole country communist. Something else happens just after the election. In November, the Vietnam War breaks out. Which, of course, means Cambodia is going to get dragged in at some point. So just remember that that situation is boiling away close by. The next decade and a half under Sihanouk's rule was characterised by ineffectual actions and politics. The Democratic Party disbanded before the next election, in 1958, leaving only the Prashirshan group. Prashirshan ran a handful of candidates, but all bar one of them withdrew before the election. The one who didn't, Kiyomis, went into hiding immediately after to avoid reprisals. Sihanouk remained really rather popular among most of the citizens, with the exception of a handful of radicals, secret communists, intellectuals, and certain groups within the Sankha. Around this time, Sihanouk started to refer to the Prashirshan group, which he portrayed as out-and-out evil commies, as the Rouges. It was 1960 when the first references appeared to them using their now infamous name, the Khmer Rouge. Over the next few years, Sihanouk's attitude towards the left mellows a bit. Several politicians of a leftist persuasion joined the Sankha, including Saw's brother, Che, one of the newspaper editors who had been arrested before the election. Sihanouk also adopts several policies that the left approved of, such as an international stance of neutrality adopted in 1957. These actions, coupled with the fact that many rebels had seen their only cause as achieving independence, meant that the KPRP saw reduced membership and enthusiasm. Many of the rebels, both leaders and normal members, had settled back down to their previous lives, or legal harmless pursuits, by 1958. At the same time, more and more of the students in France had been trickling back into the country, becoming teachers, as Saw himself did, or joining parties, including the Sankham and getting themselves government or administrative positions. Saw's bestie, Sari, had returned in 1957, shortly after Saw married a woman called Q. Ponnery, who had also been in France at the same time as Saw. The match takes everyone by surprise. Ponnery was five or six years older than Saw, so it was unusual for the time. 
I mention this primarily, and when I say primarily, I mean for literally no other reason, than to be able to mention the fact that Ponnery was considered rather plain and not particularly pretty, because her face had the scars from having had smallpox as a child. And apparently, if I can mention smallpox, I gotta do it. Sihanouk also continues to encourage and foster nationalist sentiments during this period, but his idea of nationalism differs rather radically from that of the communists and left-wing radicals. Sihanouk based his nationalism in the former glory of the Angkor Empire, but for the communists, this era, rather unsurprisingly, evokes ideas of slavery and exploitation, and plays into the communist idea that history is a series of struggles that take society from the feudalism of the past toward communism. There was sporadic repression of left-wing groups, ideas, and newspapers during this era, but it wasn't a brutal crackdown. Left-wing newspapers sprang up, and by the end of 1956, there were 26 different newspapers in print in Khmer, French, Vietnamese, and Chinese. By 1958, the Prashir newspaper had a circulation of around 3,200 copies, and two related papers had a combined circulation of around 4,500 copies per week. Weirdly, crackdowns tended to happen in the run-up to elections. For instance, before the election in 1958, two editors of a left-wing journal were arrested in mid-July of 1957 just a few days after Sihanouk had had two members of the Democratic Committee arrested. In August 1959, several left-wing newspapers had been shut down, and in October, the editor of the Prashirshan was shot dead, probably by the police. And during this period in the late 50s, things were pretty okay for the peasants in the countryside. There's plenty of land available for cultivation. Most people have enough to eat. Infant mortality and rates of malaria were dropping. Education was improving. Hundreds of thousands of previously illiterate citizens learned to read, and their children attended school. Sanitation and healthcare improved. But after this, things start to escalate. In February 1959, a plot was discovered involving our local neighbourhood warlord, Dap Chuan. The plot had the backing of South Vietnam and probably the US too. Chuan was assassinated that same month, probably on the orders of Lon Nol. Sihanouk knew by September of that year that the US and South Vietnam had been involved in this plot, and it didn't do much for his opinion of them. But just before that, in August, a second assassination attempt was made against Sihanouk. Two suitcases were delivered to the palace. One contained a bomb. But Sihanouk wasn't in the room when the suitcases were opened and the bomb went off. Turns out South Vietnam was behind this one too. Also in 1959, on the communist side, Siu Heng, the KPRP guy in charge of the situation in the countryside in Cambodia, defected to Sihanouk's government, resulting in a huge disruption of communication between the communist groups in the city and those in the countryside. In April 1960, 
Sihanouk's father, the king, died. Sihanouk doesn't want anyone else to be king. Or queen. His mother was an option, but he was very against it. But Sihanouk needs to be a private citizen to maintain his position as leader of the Sangha. So he stirs the situation to such an extent that a referendum is held on what policy the country should follow. To the surprise of no one ever, the referendum is a total sham. But it allows him to force through a constitutional amendment that allowed him to become the head of state for life. At the end of September 1960, a secret congress is held by the KPRP, attended by 21 members. I'm sure you'll be surprised to learn that, at this congress, they reorganised the party and changed the name to the Workers' Party of Cambodia. Tusamut is the secretary, Nuon Shia is his deputy, and Saw is third in command. In 1961, he becomes second in command. And in July of 1962, Tusamut disappears. This leads to an emergency congress being held in February of 1963, and Saw becomes the secretary, i.e. he's number one now. We don't actually know what happened to Tusamut. He was definitely assassinated, but we don't know who done it, for sure. But it was probably Sihanouk's police. In January of 1962, Sihanouk, who was totally unimpressed with the fact that the Prashirshan group continued to exist, had had the spokesman of the party and 14 rural party workers arrested and held without charge. Two weeks later, the editor of the party's paper is also arrested. The paper was shut down and never reappeared. In May, the spokesman and the 14 arrested with him were sentenced to death though this was commuted to a lengthy stint in prison. This finally leads to the public aspect of the Prashirshan group disappearing, though their secret KPRP branch did not. On the international politics side of things, in 1963, Sihanouk broke off the military aid program he was getting from America. But there's no one to replace the funding he was getting, resulting in a decent hole in the budget. He also nationalises the import-export trade sector and closes the banks. This also does not have a positive effect on the country's bottom line, and leads to a dramatic increase in rice being smuggled out of the country to Vietnam, where traders could get more money for it. Which, in turn, leads to a big loss of money from taxes. Also in 1963, Sihanouk decided to launch another distinctly anti-left campaign. He made public a list of 24 names that Lon Nol had collected for him, accusing them of trying to overthrow the government. Soloth Saw and Yang Sari were on that list. In a highly dramatic display, because if you haven't noticed yet, Sihanouk loves theatrics, he summoned them for an audience and offered to hand over the government to them. Weirdly, they politely declined this amazing offer, and instead pledge their loyalty to him. Sihanouk allows most of them to return to their jobs. Had he known who Saw and Sorry were, he definitely wouldn't have let them go. But despite Sihanouk not recognising their importance within the communist movement, Saw and Sorry take the hint about the situation and flee to the border with Vietnam. 
1964, Sihanouk breaks off diplomatic ties with the US altogether. The whole breaking off ties with America thing isn't a popular move with the more conservative, right-wing elements of his government, but it probably helped Sihanouk maintain relationships with the other anti-American factions in surrounding countries, which he probably saw as necessary to prevent Cambodia getting dragged into the war. In 1966, Sihanouk had also formed a secret alliance with the North Vietnamese, who at this point he thought were pretty much guaranteed to win the war. In exchange for leaving Cambodians alone, avoiding contact with the Cambodian army, and respecting Cambodia's borders, Sihanouk allowed the North Vietnamese to transport weapons and supplies through the country, and to station troops in North Cambodia. As David Chandler points out, this was probably a sensible thing to do. If he hadn't reached an agreement, it's likely that the North Vietnamese would have used Cambodia anyway, without any of the promises that would protect his people from the violence and war. They would have devastated Cambodia's army. There's also another election in 1966, and Lon Nol became the Prime Minister. Despite being conservative, Lon Nol was also known for his loyalty to Sihanouk. Spoiler alert, he's not that loyal. Meanwhile, on the Khmer Rouge's end of things, Saw had become increasingly frustrated with the Vietnamese leadership, which wanted the Cambodians to dedicate their energy to helping them rather than doing anything significant in terms of revolution in Cambodia. When Saw visited China in 1965, on the other hand, he was warmly greeted and became more acquainted with their brand of communist revolution. By the end of 1966, the party had changed its name once again, becoming the Communist Party of Kampuchea, to reflect that shift in alignment. Both Soloth Saw and Yang Sari are members of its central committee. By early 1967, the whole situation with the illegal rice trade had become a big enough problem in Cambodia that Sihanouk decided that the army should go to several places to collect any surplus rice, pay the standard government price for it, and take it to government warehouses. This move sparked a peasant uprising in Batambong, which was brutally repressed by Sihanouk's forces under the command of Prime Minister Lon Nol, leading to the deaths of many farmers and rural peasants. It took a few months for Lon Nol to fully stamp out the rebellion. Hundreds were displaced and fled into the forest. The government decided to offer bounties for every rebel head a soldier brought them. And, like, since you can't ask a decapitated head whether it was actually a rebel or not, you can guess what happened. After this, Lon Nol resigned as PM and buggered off to France for six months to get some medical treatment. After Lon Nol's resignation, Sihanouk made himself president of what he named an exceptional government, installing his own cabinet of cronies. He blamed communist forces for the recent revolt and became increasingly suspicious of the left, and tried, not successfully, to renew relations with the US. The loss of US military aid, the impact of the rice trade, and the knock-on effects of the Vietnam War were starting to seriously destabilise the Cambodian economy and Sihanouk wasn't really doing much to address the situation. Instead, he was busy making a bunch of nationalist films, which he wrote, directed, and acted in, and which were basically just thinly-veiled propaganda for his political positions. Meanwhile, lack of farmable land and food shortages, coupled with violence in the countryside, forced hundreds of thousands of refugees into the cities, 
leading to crowding, unsanitary conditions, and growing unemployment and poverty. Sunuk's a good leader, yeah? The next year, 1968, saw CPK initiated an armed struggle against Sunuk's government. It was small at first, but grew over the next two years, and led to frequent and increased clashes between armed rebels and Sunuk's forces. In March 1969, a bombing campaign by America began. We still don't know whether Sihanouk authorised this campaign, known as Operation Menu, or whether it was something that happened that Sihanouk was then forced to accept rather than condemn, because by this point, he really wanted American military aid again. Though, officially, he continued to deny that there were any Viet Minh forces in Cambodia. He officially reopened diplomatic relations with America in June. The bombing campaign had two effects. It pushed more refugees into the city and radicalised others to join the Khmer Rouge because bombing people, or approving of bombing them, generally doesn't make them like you. In mid-1969, Sihanouk reappointed Lon Nol as Prime Minister, as head of what he termed the Government of Salvation. General resentment of Sihanouk's rule is growing among pretty much everyone at this point, and by late 1969, people were plotting against him. In January of 1970, Sihanouk went off to France on his annual holiday, and he's still on holiday in March, when, on the night of the 17th, Princess Wath Sirik Matuk, one of Sihanouk's many cousins, broke into the home of Lon Nol with three army officials, and forced him at gunpoint to sign a document allowing a vote against Sihanouk the very next day. The assembly voted almost unanimously to withdraw confidence from Sihanouk, and he was replaced as chief of state with a guy called Xiang Heng. Lon Nol remains as prime minister, with Motok as his assistant. And like, to be fair, if you're essentially a dictator and you bugger off on holiday for three months... What did you think would happen? The coup was popular among educated citizens in the cities and with the army, but not among the people in the countryside who, despite everything, still liked Sihanouk and were therefore inclined to oppose Lon Nol's regime. Sihanouk heard about the coup while he was in Beijing. Unfortunately for Cambodia, he decided the best way for him to regain power was to start working with the Khmer Rouge. And that's where we're ending for this episode. Next time, the profoundly miserable story of the Khmer Rouge's reign. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using, rate and review the show, especially on iTunes, in order to feed my ego. If you have questions, comments, corrections, feedback, want to suggest a topic, etc., you can find the podcast on Twitter at PoisonRoomPod, or send an email to poisonroompodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, send your local newspaper a manifesto demanding I abdicate. Transcripts of all episodes are available at poisonroom.com, where you can also see the references and bibliography. As always, if the sources are publicly available, they're linked to. You have been listening to The Poison Room a podcast that really needs to pin down a proper release schedule. The voice in your ears has been a member of a grand total of zero cabinets.